on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. The Greek philosopher Socrates once said this, Choose the mean and avoid the extremes on either side. The later Greek philosopher Aristotle applied that idea to ethics. He taught that there's often a middle point between two virtues. He called it the golden mean. So it is with certain Bible teachings. In the last episode, we considered this point, that as followers of Jesus, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is our true homeland. Therefore, as believers, we must not get caught up in the things of this earth. While that's indeed a biblical teaching, it can get out of balance. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17. He's praying for his disciples who are with him in that upper room the night before he's crucified. Jesus prays about them in this way. Father, I have given them your word. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And in this part particularly. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's true, isn't it? Jesus' disciples and we today are not of this world. Yet Jesus does not take us out of the world. Rather, he prays for our protection in the world. Like the original disciples, we must remain in the world. And that's not merely to occupy some space until Jesus comes again or until we die. Rather, Jesus calls us to be active in this world. We could say that Jesus gives us both a heavenly calling and an earthly calling. And we must keep these callings in balance. We shouldn't go to either extreme. Part of our earthly calling is the same calling that God gave to our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God commanded them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature. Later, of course, Adam and Eve fell into sin. As a result, they lost much of the image of God, that God-likeness within them. Their human nature became corrupted. In fact, the whole creation became corrupted. But the Bible teaches that God has restored his image in us through Jesus. So also in Jesus, both our heavenly and earthly callings are restored too. Our earthly calling, like the calling upon Adam and Eve, is still in part to cultivate the earth. Like our first parents, we have a God-given duty to rule and subdue the earth. Be a bit careful with those words. It can sound a bit harsh to rule and subdue. But in a full biblical context, it means that we rule over creation as wise stewards. Wise farmers and gardeners, for example, will rule over their fields and their lands. They will, for example, try to conquer the weeds and the pests. They'll strive to improve crop yields. But good farmers and gardeners will not damage or destroy the land. They won't let the topsoil erode or let the land become polluted. We can apply that same creational command to all of society and all of culture today, that we as followers of Jesus are to be wise stewards, not only of fields and farms, 
but also of our cities and urban areas. As good stewards, we should seek to enhance good infrastructure in our cities, including good transportation and education and health care. We desire good designs for buildings and for public spaces. All of this and more is part of God's calling upon believers today. So yes, as followers of Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. We must focus our minds, our hearts, foundationally upon the things of Jesus. But we also have this earthly calling. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus gives us certain responsibilities that we may live well and wisely upon this earth. We hold a heavenly citizenship, but we also have our earthly calling. Those two realities have to be kept in some kind of balance. You see, there are some believers who become too extreme in their heavenly citizenship. We might consider them even hyper-spiritual. I once had a friend in California who would observe other believers in his workplace. He told me that as soon as they began their work, going to their workspace or sitting in their cubicle, they would immediately put on their headphones and they would be listening to sermons and biblical teaching all day long while they were working. As a result, he said, they got very sloppy in their work. They were distracted. They weren't giving 100%. That can happen when believers become hyper-spiritual. They don't view their daily work as part of God's calling upon them. Their energy and attention is given mostly or even exclusively to the spiritual realm, to heavenly matters. And that's wrong. Now, it can happen that some churches will feed that impulse. Churches can actually encourage their members to get out of balance. For example, some churches expect their members to attend leadership meetings on Monday night, to participate in youth meetings on Tuesday night, Wednesday night they must show up for prayer meeting, Thursday night is their cell group, and Friday evening they're busy in some street ministry or or doing evangelism. Now, all those things are good in themselves. But these believers have become hyper-spiritual, and some churches encourage that. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Look, God didn't expect them to be reading their Bibles all day long. Oh yes, I know, they didn't have Bibles then. (laughs) But he didn't expect them to be spending 24-7 in conversation with him to be praying and singing and walking and talking with him all day long. Yes, their relationship with God was very important. In fact, it was foundational to their lives. But God is very clear. Adam and Eve, you must take care of the garden. You must supervise and manage the creation in which I placed you. You must cultivate the fruit trees and be planting crops. You must use production from animals for your own use. Be busy in those earthly activities. For my glory. Theologian Millard Erickson puts it this way. I'm slightly editing his words. God loves all his creation, not just certain parts of it. Thus, we as humans should also have concern for all of it, to preserve and guard and develop what God has made. He adds this There is no particular virtue, then, in fleeing the physical creation or avoiding bodily pursuits in favor of more spiritual activities. Did you get that? There's no virtue 
in fleeing, in running from the physical creation or avoiding bodily pursuits in favor of more spiritual pursuits. He says, God's plan involves and utilizes the best of human skill and knowledge in the refinement of the creation, that is, this earth, this world. Such endeavors are our partnership with God in the work of creation. So yes, we do have heavenly citizenship, but we definitely also have an earthly calling. Now, maybe some of our confusion on this matter arises because of how certain words are used in the Bible. Consider that word, world. What's the biblical meaning of the world? Well, if you study it out, you'll find there's a good sense of the word world and there's a bad sense of that word as it's found in the Bible. Consider the well-known verse, John 3, verse 16. There we read that God loved the world. He loved the world. That's a reference to God's general creation and to everyone who lives in that creation. In a general sense, in a creational sense, God loves the world. In Psalm 24, verse 1, we read that the earth belongs to the Lord. Other verses tell us that God cares for all the creatures in this world. But then there's a completely different use of the word world. For example, 1 John 2, verse 15, we read this. It refers to us as believers in Jesus. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then John explains further in verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So in the one verse, John 3, verse 16, we read God loves the world. And in another verse, we are told as God's people to not love the world. So you see, we have to be careful. That word world can have two different meanings, completely opposite meanings. There's a good sense and a bad sense of that word. Now let me refer to certain times in the history of the church. Some believers tried to completely escape from the world. They viewed almost everything in the world as evil as potentially corrupting them. Some of these believers became monastics. The root of that word, monastic, comes from the Greek word monos. Monos means alone, being all alone. And a moakos, monakos, is a person who lives all alone. From that, in English, we get the words monk and monastery. The monks tried to isolate themselves from the world, especially in later monasticism in the 13th and 14th centuries. Those monks would take certain vows upon themselves. They made special promises to God, including promises of lifelong celibacy. Often they would also take vows of poverty. And at the same time, they devoted themselves to a contemplative lifestyle contemplating spiritual matters, spending long hours in Bible reading and in praying and in singing. But what happened? What happened? Well, over the years, the monks ended up in as much sin as the world around them. Oh, often their sin was 
disguised or excused or kept inside those walls, but inside the monasteries, behind those walls, there was lots of gossip and slander, lots of internal politics and power plays. There was also a great deal of sexual immorality and stealing and lying. This reminds me of Jesus' words spoken in his day against the religious leaders of the Jews. Some of those leaders were setting so many rules. Again, supposedly, by setting those rules, they would protect their followers from sin or from the temptation to sin. But Jesus said this, quote, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can make him unclean? Rather, it's what comes out of a person. That's what makes him unclean. For from within, out of people's own hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. That's Mark 7, verse 17 and following. That's why putting believers in isolation forcing them to live behind the thick walls of a monastery. Those things in themselves will never promote goodness or godliness because our sin problem, our tendency to think and say and do what is wrong, comes from inside of us. The Apostle Paul also had to oppose false teachers in his day. They were found within the early churches. They would have been called hyper-spiritualists in his day also. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 2. Why do you submit to these rules, these man-made rules? Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. These regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul is saying these man-made rules and regulations do not restrain sin. They don't hold us back from sinning. They'll not even reduce temptations to sin. But the problem here goes even deeper, I think. You see, God created us not as disembodied souls, living up in the clouds, flitting about. No, God created us as bodies as flesh and blood bodies, bodies with five physical senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. God created us to use these physical senses. And yes, by making use of these senses, we'll be kept back from danger and we'll be learning things. But also, think of this, through those physical senses, we now have the capacity to fully enjoy God's good creation. With our eyes, we see the snow-capped mountains. With our noses, we can smell freshly brewed cappuccino. With our ears, we delight in the sound of a flute. All of this is why God created us, to enjoy His creation, the creation which testifies us of Him as the Creator. In this regard, let me quote something from theologian and pastor John Calvin. Calvin lived way back in the 16th century, and with Martin Luther, Calvin is considered one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. Now, Calvin's often criticized because he's perceived as being too harsh, too strict, and yes, at times he can be. But in this quote, it's very interesting. 
Listen to how he writes about believers fully enjoying creation. I'm editing his words a bit. Has the Lord clothed the flowers with the great beauty that greets our eyes? The sweetness of smell that is wafted upon our nostrils? And yet, might it be unlawful for our eyes to enjoy that beauty? Or to smell the sweetness of the flower's perfume? What? How could that be? Did not God distinguish colors as to make some colors more lovely than others? Did he not endow gold and silvery, ivory and marble with a loveliness that renders them more precious than other metals and stones? Calvin is saying this, Enjoy these things of creation. Not just the ordinary things like stones, but enjoy the gold and silver, the ivory and marble. There is a loveliness in these materials that God has created. So you see, it's not only about duty, that we have a calling to be busy at work in God's creation, that we must be actively building culture and society. Yes, that too. But God is also calling us to sit back and enjoy his creation. To enjoy his creation. Just for the sheer beauty of it. For the delight that all of society and culture also brings to us as followers of Jesus. That's a big part of our earthly calling before God. Yes, we must read our Bibles. We must learn more about Jesus. We should study good theology. And in that, we'll also be growing in our love for God and for people. But at the same time, our calling from God is to delight in the classical music of a Ludwig Beethoven or in the singing of an Ella Fitzgerald, to enjoy the high literature of a William Shakespeare or the murder mysteries of Agatha Christie. As God's people, we should delight in the discoveries of scientists and in the achievements of engineers. All that and so much more is part of our calling as followers of Jesus today. Let's just be careful to avoid the extremes, that we don't become either hyper-spiritual on the one hand, nor hyper-worldly on the other hand. In fact, there's an old saying. Maybe you've heard it. This was said of certain super-pious Christians. They are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. So be careful. Let's not be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. When I lived in California, I was serving a church there, and I had a practice of visiting those believers who were over 80 years of age, especially on or near their birthdays. I recall one lovely believer, a widow lady. She was well into her 90s. She had been legally blind for many years. When I would visit her on yet another one of her birthdays, she would usually say this to me, Now, Pastor, I'm glad you visited but don't be talking too much about heaven. Oh, I know I'll be going there someday. But, Pastor, God has put me here on the earth. He wants me to enjoy my earthly life also. And how true is that? This lovely believer, this follower of Jesus, loved good food and good conversation. She laughed when she heard good jokes. She fully enjoyed her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. 
She was a lovely member of the congregation and delighted in her brothers and sisters in Jesus. Her ultimate citizenship was in heaven. She knew that. But here she was on earth, still busy fulfilling her duties, enjoying all of life until the day God took her home. Let's keep that balance. It's an important balance. Indeed, we are citizens of heaven. And at the same time, the Lord also gives us a wonderful earthly calling. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down.